Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to get live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is October the 23rd, 2020. This is episode 2759 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for Expert Council Q&A. This is where you guys send me questions for Expert Council members. And I'm, I'm a little low on questions right now. Uh, I've got several segments here today that were things that the council uh, whipped up for you. Uh, I need questions for the council. I seem to have no shortage of questions for me, but sometimes the council, I don't get enough questions for. And um, so if you want to uh, contribute to this show and to get an answer from an expert in their particular field, just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. If you go to the Meet the Expert Council, which is under the About tab at the survivalpodcast.com, you can see all our experts. And in every Expert Council show, they're all listed along with their websites uh, at the bottom of every episode. So here's what I have for you today. I have a great quote to wrap up Oscar Wilde Week on Quote of the Day. I got Darby Simpson talking about getting your land ready and yourself ready for raising pastured pork next year. Sean Mills talks about a look at the future of solar energy based on some documentation that I recently sent to him. Uh, Jessica Mills has some budget gear suggestions for hiking, go bags, scouting, etc. Tim, the tool man cook, not talking about tools today, but turning trash into cash at another side hustle that's out there and available. Ken Berry talks about carb loading and how that pertains to endurance sports. Doc Bones talks to us about minor cuts and scrapes. And following up yesterday, I got a question on balancing using the systems and being independent when it comes to growing a business. That'll be my segment for the day. We'll get to all of that in just a bit, but let's start out with a quote of the day. This one is so succinct and so obvious to any person that you know with an IQ above like 85 that I don't know why I need to say much about it. It's a really, you know, quotes like that are great quotes. Oscar Wilde once said, true friends stab you in the front. And, and you know, I'll tell you what, I, I have never really had a problem with a friend who has offered me criticism to my face. Behind your back is a different thing, and that's what Wilde is talking about here. I almost used this quote on the show I did Wednesday with... Um, with John Gay, who's a retired now United States Army soldier, because of the, 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 the talk we had about banter and how guys banter with each other in the real world, not in the little fake bubble that's been created. Uh, if you listen to a couple construction workers, at least real construction workers, instead of some of the people now that fancy themselves that, or soldiers and Marines that love each other, talk to each other, it sounds like they hate each other sometimes. And that's because when you when you tell somebody something, even if it's not the nicest thing in the world, if it's said to a person who knows you genuinely do like them, and it's said up front and in person, it's generally well-received. And if it's just banter, then it's seen as banter. But when you say something behind somebody's back, and it gets back to them, and it always will, I hope that person was an enemy. Because if they weren't, they're going to turn into one. Something to keep in mind. With that, let's go ahead and get into our first call of the or sorry, call of the day. A question of the day for an expert council member. This is for Darby Simpson on getting things ready for pastured pork. Hey there everyone, this is Darby Simpson of Grass Fed Life calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. And this week we've got an email from Rebecca. 
in central New York, and she has got a question about raising pigs. Raising pigs not just for herself, but also to sell. And before I answer Rebecca's question, one thing I want to mention that many of you may not be aware of, we actually have on the Grass-Fed Life website a free course that's over seven hours long. Um, you can find that by going out to grassfedlife.co backslash free. The reason I mention this is that uh, one of the modules in that six-module course is all about raising pigs. It's a primer. It's a free starter on how to go about raising pigs for homestead and or for profit. So check that out. Think about that as you're listening to this answer for Rebecca today and how possibly you might start your uh, side hustle or maybe just raise more food for your family on your homestead. And I'll mention, too, that in the near future, we're going to have some new homestead-directed courses coming out on the Grass-Fed Life website. So you can be sure to check that out as well. And if you're a Grass-Fed Life uh, listener, you'll hear about that on the podcast. And if you're an MSB member, if you support Jack, you get a 15% discount on any courses out there. So keep that in mind. Now, on to Rebecca's question. Uh, she wants to know about what preparations on our forest should I make this fall in order to raise two to four pigs next year? Are there plants we can sow on the floors, forest floor that will grow to help provide forage? Details, I have a small homestead in central New York, Zone 5, with two acres. About half of it is essentially unused, medium-maturity hardwood forest. It mostly has black walnut, black locust, and maple trees. We plan to run electricity from our garage to the edge of the woods, which is about 20 yards away, in order to power electric fence. We will want to rotationally graze them, but haven't decided on fence style yet. We will be raising pork for our family and sell to a couple of friends and plan to raise a breed that will be ready to butcher next fall. Uh, Rebecca, there's a lot in this, but we're going to try and unpack it real quick for you here. Uh, first thing, I think doing two to four pigs your first time out is perfect. And Jack jokingly mentioned in his email to me that he could hear me saying, raising 12 pigs is the same amount of work as, as two or four. And basically that's true. Um, but I think the first time you do pigs, I think four is a perfect number. Um, two for your family will provide quite a bit of meat, assuming you, you get them up into that 275, 300 pound range. Uh, as far as breed, uh, you're going to want to look at some more traditional breeds. Um, you'll see some of that if you, if you take that free course I mentioned earlier, and that's, that's one of the reasons I mentioned it, I cover breeds specifically in there, but you're going to want to look at some traditional, you know, Duroc, uh, or Berkshire, Hamps, something along those lines, even what are called blue butts, which are like a Chestershire, uh, crossed with a Yorkshire. They're, they're, they're white pigs, but, they're excellent uh, foragers in the forest. So uh, keep that in mind. You, you're going to want to work, you know, things backwards and 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 do the math based on what I lay out in that course about, you know, when they're going to be ready to butcher. I'm going to tell you too right now. If you don't have butcher dates, go ahead and get them scheduled if you can. Uh, most butchers are, if they're not full for 2021, they're really really close. Um, you may need to learn how to do butchering on your own. At this point, it really just depends. But that first things first, 
get however many pigs you're going to raise figured out and call a butcher and get them scheduled. Um, now, as for the uh, rest of your email here, things that you can do uh, this fall – it would be some chainsaw work. Regardless of what kind of fence you're going to use, uh, start figuring out where that perimeter fence is going to go. And we'll get to regular fence here in a moment, but start taking out junk uh, saplings or dead standing stuff, brush that's in the way, whatever. Get yourself a nice wide path. Um, say a minimum of four feet, maybe as much as eight feet wide just where you think you're going to run your perimeter fence and start to get that cleaned up. And then if you want to subdivide, start thinking about where am I going to subdivide. And we'll make this as rectangular or square as you can. Straight lines are best, but, you know, nothing's perfect. Um, that's that's the big thing to start doing this fall. You could go ahead um, and get your power ran out to a post, put a cutout switch out there. Uh, something else you could go ahead and do, you're going to want to have a, a very good, solid area to train the pigs to electric in. Again, I covered this in that free course. Uh, you need a fixed physical barrier to train them in, and then you train them to electric inside of that. Uh, the simplest thing to do is to get T-posts and hog panels and, and build yourself like a 32-foot by 32-foot corral that you can unload them into, and then you can set up some like electronet inside of that if you want to train them to electronet or, or whatever it is you want to use. But you definitely want a physical barrier to contain them in while you're introducing them to Mr. Franklin's invention of electricity. Uh, it can be a little nerve-wracking, and sometimes they'll squirt through uh, the pig fence, particularly if you're using the netting. If they're smaller than like 50, 60 pounds, they can actually squirt through that pretty easily. So those are a few things you could go ahead and do, obviously. Take the free course, brush up on things, start trying to find someone you can buy pigs from, and then you can start thinking about fence. Now, basically, you've got a couple options. You can use the portable electronet. I think it works great. I think it's fine. It's very flexible. It comes in 100-foot sections or 50-foot sections. I would tell you with this group, you want to think about having at least four 100-foot sections that you can set up. And then for rotating, you really, you want three more, right? You need seven pieces. So you can set up that next paddock, open up the section between them, rotate them in, then take three sections down and kind of leapfrog around your forest like that. Um, you could use... T-posts and, you know, a couple of hot wires. I know guys that do that. I'm personally not comfortable with that. I've got a highway that cuts through my farm. I want my pigs contained. I sleep better at night. If you want to go all out, you could look at a high-tensile woven wire product from a company called PowerFlex out of Missouri. I've not personally used it, but I think it looks magnificent. And it literally is high-tensile fence and woven wire combined into one. Um, it's, uh, it can be electrified. Uh, you kind of build it like high tensile fence. It, so again, if you want something a bit more permanent, you can look at that. But I think your first time out, maybe just do like the Premier Net. Um, that's the, the quick, easy solution. Learn, uh, about pigs. And if you want to do more pigs and if you want to make this a legit side hustle, then you can make that larger investment into something like that woven wire product that I just mentioned. Um, as far as things you can plant, it really depends on the canopy and how much light is getting into your forest. I mean, the short answer is probably not. 
But if uh, we're talking about stuff that can be done in early spring, you might be able to get some brassicas out there. Uh, I have done turnips, and I found out that pigs really do not like turnips, and turnips stink really bad in the winter when they lay there and rot, and you've got pigs on top of them. Um, but some different brassicas, I know guys that have done that, and they've had some success with it. Any kind of greens, you know, stuff you could put out there early spring, cold-hardy stuff. Uh, that you could try to get to germinate. You could do some other, you know, quick growing annuals. But again, if you've got a lot of canopy cover, my experience is it's really going to struggle. So you're definitely going to need to provide some more traditional food sources for them. That probably means grain. Uh, it might mean soy. That's all up to you. Very personal preference there as far as that goes. Um, you know, we've uh, really covered pretty much everything in here. The one thing I want to mention, though, is you said you want to sell to a couple of friends, and here's the big takeaway. You'll get people that will tell you, absolutely, I'll take a half, I'll take a whole, etc. That pig ain't sold unless you've collected a deposit. And I cannot stress this enough. I hear from students all the time. I didn't take your advice. I didn't collect a deposit because it's my brother-in-law's best friend's uncle's nephew's cousin, and I know him really well, and they screwed me. So collect a deposit. Look at my website, simpsonfamilyfarm.com, to see how we do that, and collect money up front and make sure they know it's a business contract. So there you go, Rebecca. I tried to cover everything that I could for you in that short amount of time. Uh, again, check out that, that free course on the grassfedlife.co website backslash free. A lot of people have signed up for it. I think you'll find it useful. As always, guys, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. And as always, have a wonderful weekend and take care. Um, yesterday, I got an email from a longtime listener. That's been actually a, a guest on the, the show. He used to comment on the blog a lot back when people commented on blogs. Uh, I believe his uh, handle back then was Angus Bangus, if I, if I remember right. Um, He's a cool dude, and he's involved deeply in the electrical uh, generation uh, engineering world. And he sent me this document on kind of what the future of solar is. And his, his assertion from it was that, you know, I've, I've talked about the Clean Disruption video series by uh, Tony Siva and the timeline maybe being a little too aggressive. And he said, I think maybe it's not aggressive enough based on this. So I took a look at this document, and I was like, I really, I really see where he's going with this. But I was also thinking, like, we haven't heard from Sean Mills in a while who knows a little about solar as he's a solar engineer. So I said, why don't I send this over to Sean and get him to kind of take a look forward at the state of solar, which is, by the way, his presentation, his full presentation he'll be doing here at TSP20 uh, next month. He's going to be on this same subject. So I thought this would be good fodder for that and a good preamble for those that will be here and a good look for those who won't. Sean, what's going on with solar in the coming years? Hey guys, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and today I have a note from Dylan. Uh, Dylan says, Solar is no joke. It's here to stay and coming faster than someone like Tony Seba predicted. COVID is killing the dying, in parentheses, like coal. Uh, in 2Q, or second quarter 2020, the U.S. reached a milestone of 50 gigawatts DC of solar installed. Uh, that's the equivalent of 45 large combined cycle gas turbine units. The attached forecast, uh, which is from SIA, um, the attached forecast that double that will be installed between 21 and 25. That's based on public filings and projects in utility capital plans that have already been published. Uh, a huge portion of it was storage capacity. 
I'd expect either a huge surge in 2023 or a lot of lobbying dollars spent to delay the step down in the investment tax credit beyond 2023. Uh, Dylan attached the uh, Q2 report from SIA, which is the Solar Energy Industries Association, SEIA. They're the largest uh, solar energy trade group out there. Uh, Dylan, I completely agree that solar is no joke. Uh, and I've got some interesting additional notes for you. Um, now, while I'm a big proponent of residential solar, utility-scale solar is what has created the economies of scale that have made residential solar more cost-effective year-over-year and have reduced the cost of an installed grid-tied roof-mounted solar system by over 90% in the past 10 years. Um, I will say, while I'm not a huge fan of government spending, uh, the investment tax credit um, has acted the way that a federal subsidy is supposed to. It's created hundreds of thousands of jobs and generated probably in the neighborhood of, of hundreds of thousands of dollars per dollar spent when you think about the actual investment, the purchasing of land, the employment, uh, wages, etc. that have been generated through these tax subsidies. Um, now, in 2015, so here's some interesting notes. 2015, utility-scale solar uh, was at $1.49 a watt installed. Okay, so that was what uh, bids were coming in at. That was in 2015. In 2017, it was $0.99. Cents, and right now, it's $0.81 cents per watt installed. So less than a dollar per watt installed for utility-scale solar. Now, you're never going to touch those numbers on a residential system, but, you know, when these companies are putting in, you know, megawatt and larger uh, installations, they can really run those economies of scale up. Uh, the biggest issue with solar, as you infer with your comment on storage, is that solar and wind don't produce right when we need to use it. Uh, if there was a way to store the electricity produced locally and then use it locally that's close to grid parity, then you would see an even faster shift away from coal. Uh, there's some interesting notes about how, you know, we had a pretty weak winter this past winter. And uh, in January, coal really, uh, I think it was down 13% year over year, uh, which was one of the biggest drops ever. So the amount of electricity that was generated in January was was very, very low from coal. Um, and so, but, but realistically, and today, solar energy is, at least last time I checked, photovoltaic is the lowest levelized cost of electricity that can be installed. Again, the issue isn't the generation. It's matching the generation up with when we want to use it. Um, right now, coal still has six times the share of generation as solar. Or to put it another way, uh, in order to replace coal with solar, we would need to install at the 2016 all-time record of 15.6 megawatts for the next 16 years, as well as install new capacity to take up 100% of the efficiency losses from now until 2035. So, uh, you know, I, I, we're not going to drop coal. Uh, the newer coal power plants do a very good job. They're still getting their butts kicked by natural gas, solar, wind, and nuclear. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, uh, we need a baseline and coal still does a pretty good job of doing that, uh, politics aside. So now to pick on nuclear a little bit. Uh, for the country's baseload, I still think that nuclear and natural gas are the long-term co-options. 
Um, I think that uh, the, the issue we're going to see is there's going to be a lot of nuke retirements due to old age over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, the reality is, is that we haven't brought very many new nuclear units online really since the late 70s. Uh, the only unit that's scheduled to come online or is even under construction at this point is Volgo Units 3 and 4 down in Georgia. Uh, when they're done, they will have taken between eight and nine years to complete and cost between 27 and 30 billion with a B dollars. Now, taking the lower end of that estimate, and if you've followed or if you're from Georgia, you know that the lower end of the estimate isn't the place to be for this, these Units 3 and 4. Um, you could install over 33 gigawatts of solar photovoltaics, which would generate more than double the annual electricity of the Vogel units with minimal comparative operating costs and fuel costs, although possibly potentially similar end-of-life waste issues. Uh, yes, nuclear fuel, spent nuclear fuel is a problem, but there are solutions to that problem, whereas... 33 gigawatts of uh, burnt, used-up uh, photovoltaic panels we really wouldn't know what to do with right now. And as a matter of fact, if they had the land, the storage technology, and the grid that was capable of handling it, and they don't have any of those three, this is theoretical, but if they did, that theoretical solar farm would generate 37% of the annual electrical, electrical consumption of the entire state of Georgia. Uh, now, and I haven't done the math on it, but I wonder what the cost of maintaining and replacing lost capacity of a solar field would be per watt of generation versus operating and fueling a nuclear plant as well as decommissioning costs of a nuclear plant. Uh, but you know what? That's a conversation for a different day. Thanks, Dylan, for the thought and for the report. Um, I actually had a really good time um, researching this and, and seeing some of the things that have changed over the past five years. A lot of times we look at what's going on right now or in the past month and don't really look back to see where we've come in the last five years or longer. Uh, with all that being said, guys, Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com. Keep sending questions in the jack. I'll keep answering them. Thanks, and have a great day. You know, I I want to point something out about what Sean said there. He said, you know, you'll never touch that number in a residential install right now. And then you won't. Uh, as far as the you know that low bottom end number on uh, power generation cost install for solar, but you'll get a lot closer to it than you think you will over the next couple of years. Economies of scale are broad. That's a, that's a that's a, a rule of economics that we tend not to teach people because well, it's kind of counter to socialism theory. Uh, but it is the market, and the market's going to market no matter what you do. And what I mean by that is when an industry is producing a billion of anything uh, commercially for a power buyer, that there is a trickle-down effect in the pushing down of cost per unit to everybody, not just the power buyer. Now, the power buyer will always be able to command a greater discount because they are going to be the person that's like, I'm going to spend $10 million dollars. That's how much money I have to spend, and I'm either going to buy from A, B, C, or D, depending on all the factors and what, how much do I get, what's the warranty. Like it's, it's not a straight equation of how many, how many megawatts of power I'm going to get in this instance. It's a totality of what is the value that I'm buying. But as that's done, and these different companies compete for business, you get that economy of scale, and it, it goes far more broadly than I think a lot of people think. So while you won't touch those numbers yet, 
the numbers for doing home-scale installation have drastically gone down per watt. The thing that is still the, the holdup, but it's, it's, it's rapidly shifting to being the enabler, is storage. Like Sean said, store, you know, power is one thing, storage is another. But uh, it's, it's changing, and it's changing fast. And I, like I said, and I, this is why I wanted Sean to talk about this, all this Green New Deal talk, a lot of it is crazy nonsense. It really is. Cow farts and airplanes can't go places or whatever. It's just stupid. However, the overriding concept that we are going to transition off of fossil fuels over the next 10 years, as aggressive as that sounds, is largely factual. Notice I didn't say 100% factual. Uh, 10 years from now, there will still be natural gas-powered power generation plants. There will still be coal-powered generation plants. And there will definitely still be nuclear. And those will be the last ones to be decommissioned, like Sean was talking about. But when I looked at the report, no coal generation has been added to the grid, if I remember right, since like 2014. We haven't added any coal generation at all since 2014. China's building them left and right because it's cheap and it works. We're not adding any because we see the future. So when politicians are promising this new world, they're doing it because they know it's going to happen anyway. The same way Mitt Romney promised you when he was running against Barack Obama, what? North American energy independence. Well, because we were already on the road to it. Trump takes credit for it today, but it was already coming all the way, way back then, when Mr. Rhino Romney said it was coming. Uh, if you elected him. They always like to make promises that they can keep because they don't actually have to do anything. And uh, so what you have right now, and, and you know, I, I have positive and negative things to say about Trump, but when Trump is promising to keep your gas and your oil and all those jobs around, it ain't going to happen. But it's going to happen. And what I mean is that sector will continue to dwindle as more and more of this clean, cheap energy comes on board. And you can say whatever you want about the tailpipes longer and mining minerals and whatever. This is happening. You need you can just stop denying it. This is happening. And it's important to understand what's happening because people who live in denial cannot be prepared for the future that they are in denial thereof. Anyway, next up, Jessica Mills, of no relation to Sean Mills, on budget gear for hiking, backpacking, go bags, stuff like that. Hey y'all, Jessica Mills, aka Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land. First, I want to tell y'all that I am very sorry for my long leave of absence. This year has been particularly rough as I've lost some family members. Uh, a dog child passed away, and if you know me, my dogs are family. They are my children. And then my dad was just released from the hospital after a month-long battle against COVID and we nearly lost him. So anyway, I am back now. And if you've sent in any questions for me and haven't gotten a response, please do me a favor and resend them to Jack. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. I do want to make sure I answer your questions though and make sure that I get those in my hands. So, all right. Today, I wanted to share with y'all some budget backpacking gear. A couple of months ago, I tested a full backpacking loadout that was less than $500. So 
it's very budget friendly for the world of backpacking. And if you're wondering what backpacking gear has to do with modern survivalism, well, potentially a lot because backpackers are very self-sufficient people that take some necessities, throw them into a bag and go tromping through the woods. And many backpacking items are lightweight and durable and could also be used in a go bag or a bug out bag, etc. And Jack always says it's important to have an evacuation plan if natural disasters happen or, you know, for whatever reason you have to leave your home, so say a hurricane's coming and you might want to go hole up in a hotel or you could make something fun of it and do a family adventure like backpacking or camping. Uh gear that's lightweight in the backpacking world can also be and usually is expensive and the most expensive items are the big 3 that's what we call them in the backpacking world so uh your shelter your sleeping bag and your pack so i'm going to tell you about the big 3 items that i used on this budget backpacking trip and then if you want to check out all of the other items in the loadout i'll send jack the link to that video Uh, and you can see how they performed and he can put that in the show notes for y'all. So, because the big 3 are typically the most expensive and the most important items, then I'll go ahead and cover those with y'all. So, number 1 is your shelter. For this trip, I used the Nature Hike Vic 1 tent, so it's a one-person backpacking tent. It weighs 42.6 ounces and at the time I purchased it, it cost $122 on Amazon, of course. prices on Amazon are subject to fluctuate at any time but the thing that i like about this tent is it's a free standing tent that weighs between 2 and 3 pounds which is i mean really good for putting it on your back and having a tote it somewhere obviously if you're going to just pull up in a car uh and throw your tent down and and do just a camp out then the weight might not matter as much to you but anyway this tent being a freestanding tent uh means that it doesn't take a whole lot of skill to set it up and it comes with the stakes the poles the ground cloth so all of that only weighs 42.6 ounces and uh there's a tent that I talk about in the video also that's a lot lighter but it uses trekking poles to set up or if you don't have trekking poles you could use branches um but it's going to take a bit more finesse but if you're interested in something that's more lightweight then that would be a good option it's the 3F UL gear tent but again you can check out the video for more information number 2 of the big 3 is the sleeping bag i used the Aegis Max outdoor ultralight goose down sleeping bag available at the time for $95 on Amazon and it weighs 18.6 ounces. Now the comfort rating on that sleeping bag, which is something you should always pay attention to, just because a sleeping bag's rated to a certain temperature doesn't mean that you'll be comfortable at that temperature. Uh but the comfort rating is 52 degrees and then the extreme rating, so you shouldn't die <laughs> down to this temperature is 15 degrees but that's really for emergencies only and you should not plan to take this bag out in that cold of a setting uh and i always suggest that new backpackers go in the warmer season so maybe late spring during the summer early fall and then as you get more comfortable and you have all of your gear blunders while it's safe and relatively warm 
uh, once you kind of get a grip on things, then you can start transitioning to the winter months if that's something that you think you would enjoy. Now, this sleeping bag is nice because it is down, so it's got down fill. That's the insulating material on the inside. The great thing about down is it's lightweight and also will be compact in your bag. It's not going to take up a lot of space at all, so you could get a much cheaper sleeping bag that will keep you warm at 52 degrees but this one is very lightweight and again will not take up a whole lot of space in a bag now a little bonus here this doesn't count towards the big three but i want to mention a sleeping pad because i thought that this was also a really great deal it's the sleeping go sleeping pad available on amazon for 40 dollars and weighs 14 ounces it is an inflatable sleeping pad so it's Still good for people who toss and turn and sleep on their hip or, you know, on their stomach in the night. Um, basically, if you do anything but sleep on your back, you'll want an inflatable sleeping pad. Now, I get it. You might be thinking, well, I'm tough. I don't need a sleeping pad. You know, I can just sleep on the ground. Yes, but having a sleeping pad will make your life so much more comfortable and your trip more pleasant, but it also helps insulate you from the ground, so it helps to keep you warmer. And this particular uh, sleeping pad has a lifetime warranty, so if you tear it up, they'll replace it. And for something that only costs $40, that's a pretty great deal because usually to get a lifetime warranty you have to pay a whole lot more and this sleeping pad also comes with a field repair kit in case you end up popping a hole in it now item number three is a pack for my trip i use the 3f ul gear water resistant pack it cost me 57 dollars on aliexpress.com it weighs 31.8 ounces, so pretty lightweight. Now, it's comfortable as long as you're using lightweight gear. So if you use the gear that I used on my trip or something comparable in weight, then it it's fairly comfortable. Uh, you know, it'll carry just fine on your back. It's not super sturdy because it doesn't have a frame system in it like a, a lot of packs do. But I just used a foam pad uh, that I had from one of my other packs is actually used for like a sit pad to make your booty more comfortable out in the woods. Um, so, but again, you can learn more about what I did there, but that just helped with the stability. Now don't let the name, uh, trick you. It is a water resistant pack supposedly, but it is not waterproof. It will leak if it rains. Um, so make sure you have some sort of pack liner. It can be a compactor bag, um, some sort of, you know, thicker trash bag, but I get pack liners from Gossamer Gear. They fit nicely in the pack. They're lightweight and they're durable. Uh, but $57 is a steal for a decent pack, uh, plus the $10 for a sit pad. So this would be really good. I mean, all of this gear that I used if you have somebody involved in scouts. So either your daughter or your son or your scout leader and you want some gear recommendations for the kids that, you know, it's okay if they grow out of it because you didn't spend a ton of money. But it's also decent gear that they can continue to use. Um, but if they decide in a year that they hate backpacking, then, you know, you haven't lost a whole lot. But if you want to see the rest of the gear items, like what I used for water filtration, how I cooked my food, what clothing I used, rain gear, the battery packs to charge my phone, then you can check out the video link in the show notes. And if you want other info on how to get involved in the world of backpacking, or if you want to see the adventures that I've documented myself, go over to the channel over on YouTube, Homemade Wanderlust. Thanks, y'all. 
And uh, when I said earlier that I, I needed questions for people, Jessica is one of those people that I need questions for. Please get them to me. Send them to Jack at the survival com. TSPC expert in the subject line. It's good to hear from her after such a long break. Next up, Tim the Tool Man Cook on turning other people's trash into your cash. Hey guys, this is Tim the Toolman Cook from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Coming to you from AllSeasonsMain.com where we define what it means to be a successful entrepreneur as a modern handyman where we share tips and tricks, successes and failures on the road to financial freedom. So I'm back here answering another question for the expert council. And this week's question was uh, inspired by a post on Greg over at the Living Free in Tennessee MeWe group. And he wanted to know whether a junk and garbage removal business is a good business to get into right now. He wanted to know what that gig looks like in the middle of winter. And he mentions that he sees a wave of foreclosures coming soon with a lot of junk being left behind by the previous tenants. So Greg, let me start out by saying that other than snow removal, Garbage removal has been my single largest money-making service I offer. First, a list of things you'll need in order to start a garbage hauling service. Do you have a truck? If you answered yes, then that's the entire list. You can start with a truck and haul whatever and wherever you want. I mean, you could haul it in the back of an SUV or a minivan too, but it's not very practical in the middle of summer and your wife might kind of get mad. Invest in a good cargo net some nice heavy-duty ratchet straps and some contractor garbage bags, and a heavy-duty garbage bag holder. It's seriously one of the lowest cost of entry services you can offer as a handyman, and the return on the investment is very quick. Look online. There is literally always someone looking for someone else to haul their junk away. Make sure you charge accordingly. I certainly started out charging too little when I started, and I quickly rolled my rates up to where the market would dictate for me. Also, do not forget to include the landfill fees, if there are any of those, because depending on the landfills, I've had to pay pretty crazy fees in different places to dispose of things like air conditioners, fridges, freezers, and even mattresses. So it never hurts to call ahead and find out what their fees are. Also, save yourself some time and find out what the landfill requires for sorting as well, because it's better to have it pre-sorted and not have to worry about tearing apart garbage bags when you get there. As far as the different seasons go, I find that it's certainly a seasonal business. The busiest time is definitely early spring, when people are looking to clean out all the junk they've collected over the winter. As well, the end of the month tends to be busier, when tenants move out unexpectedly. The week or two after Christmas can be quite busy as well, when people are getting rid of a lot of their old appliances that they've replaced, and they tend to have more garbage than the amount they're allowed for that week. Uh, This year, I'm on pace for doing well over 100 dump runs for different customers, and I live in a town of just over 2,000 people. I do them 12 months of the year, spring and fall are the busiest times, but there's no reason that if you lived in a decent size area, population-wise, you wouldn't be able to easily make a full-time good, really good income from it. And as far as foreclosures go, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Lots of areas have had moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures. I also take care of bank-owned properties and haven't had a single new foreclosure since March. But a few that are in the pipeline that'll happen as soon as the moratorium's lifted. There's going to be a huge influx of bank properties, and there'll be a ton of money to be made there for you. Be proactive, call the property management companies, and give them your number so you're top of mind when they need someone. 
Also, if you're willing, there may be some cleaning uh, needed as well with these properties. So don't shy away from that because if you can stack services, then that's when you really get the finances flowing. With dump runs, there's always room for what I call a side hustle within a side hustle. More ways to squeeze extra money out of the same time and job. If you're hauling wood and trees for someone, save the good stuff. Cut it up and turn it into bundles of kindling or firewood you can sell. When you're emptying out rentals, I always keep an eye out for redeemables like empty bottles and cans. I've made more than a little money from those over the years. If you have room for some storage, there's always opportunity to save the good stuff and resell it. And no, not everything's the good stuff. I use a rule of thumb that if I can't make good money from it and it won't sell within a week of posting it, then I don't bother saving it, no matter what the hoarder in my head says. Also, things like vintage video games, old records, vintage toys, I've saved all these things from a quick trip to the landfill and sold them on eBay for really good money. My favorite extra money-making idea, though, is scrap metal. You might think it takes a lot of room to save scrap, but it's really not that way. I only save copper, brass, and car batteries. I save old Rubbermaid garbage cans from jobs that are in good shape. I put all the copper wire in one, all the copper pipe in another, and all the brass in the other. And the batteries stack really well. Remember, a ton of things have copper in them, including the cords on appliances and the fins and air conditioning. And the return on cost versus space it takes to save it is really good. And don't forget your preps as well. I've gotten more emergency lighting, extension cords, gas cans, lanterns, garden tools, all from garbage that would have gone to the dump. So, you know, you're saving the environment and you're getting things for free. Just keep an eye open and the sky's the limit for the money that can be made for this. So thanks again, guys. Keep the questions coming. If you want to check out more about what I do, drop by my YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com, where I work really hard to share with you things that have worked for me to make me more money, and things that haven't, so you don't have to make the same, same mistakes I have as well. I also have a short video every Monday called A Money-Making Minute, and that's where I share a money-making idea or concept that I've seen lately that could help contribute to yours and my financial freedom. So as always, guys... Stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Next up, we've covered a lot about keto dieting around here, but is there a case for carb loading with endurance sports? I am not going to say no, but I'm also not going to say yes. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Ken Berry to give you some thoughts on it, and I'm going to give you some follow-up on it on my balanced view of this and why I agree with Ken, but I also am open to other potential possibilities. But I'll tell you another individual very well known in this space of diet and nutrition who will tell you all about what carb loading did to him if you want to go listen to him. And we'll do that as soon as Ken's done. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question from a listener today. This question comes from Troy. And Troy says, what are your thoughts about carb stacking for endurance sports like long-distance cycling while on a ketogenic diet? I know this probably sounds like a complete oxymoron, but I'm curious about it in an endurance sports concept. In endurance sports, you obviously burn through a lot of energy in a short amount of time, and I was wondering what an expert opinion on the subject might be. Uh, this is an excellent question. So uh, first and foremost, the human body can burn two sources of fuel. We can either burn ketones and fatty acids, and that's what happens when you're fat adapted, 
on a, a very low carb, a keto or carnivore diet, or you can burn glucose. And so uh, the, the, the thought about this is shifting very rapidly, Troy. More and more, there are uh, endurance athletes that are like ultimate marathoners, marathoners, triathletes, uh, and long distance bikers who are recognizing the power of a ketogenic diet. You can only hold and store a few grams of sugar in the form of glycogen in your liver and your muscles and maybe a few other places in your body. And if you're still a sugar burner, once that's uh, gone, you either hit the wall or you start sucking on the, the glucose gels that they have along the raceway of these long races. A fat burner, on the other hand, is burning fat. And so even a very slender endurance athlete, even if they have a, a body fat percentage of 7% or less, they still have enough energy stored in that fat to run for days. Uh, and more and more you're starting to see people discover this and they don't touch the sugar gels or the, the Gatorade or the sugar drinks. They just burn fat while they run. Now you, you have to transition to this slowly. So if you're currently an endurance athlete, you're not going to be able to just switch to keto and then run a race next week. You've got to crank back up your fat burning machinery and get your body used to being fat adapted and burning fat. And there, I mean, uh, there's a guy now who's running ultra marathons, running a hundred miles with no glucose intake whatsoever during the entire hundred mile race. There's numerous triathletes and long, long distance bikers and runners and swimmers doing this now. A guy recently uh, completed a 100 mile hike on nothing but body fat. I, you have to be fat adapted, and for a, a competitive level athlete, that's probably going to take you three to six months to to get your body completely fat adapted, so that you can just tap into your fat reserves on a long race like that. So don't try to make this transition quickly, or you're going to suck during your next race. But once you're completely fat adapted, the beauty of, of burning fat for fuel is you're never going to run out. You're never going to hit the wall. You just keep going, and so keep. Keep your eyes peeled on this uh, this little sliver of athletics and sports medicine because more and more guys are starting to run on fat and not use the glucose anymore. Hope this helps. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you next time. This is one of these places where I have nothing to disagree with, with, with anything Ken said, but I have more to add, and some of it might sound a little bit like a disagreement. But it's not. So one thing I will definitely say is that people who do high endurance, um, whether that be long duration endurance or high intensity training, like HIT training, whatever, often do state that when they are pushing their training to the maximum, if they are 100% keto, they feel like they lack energy, and adding some carbs back to the mix solves that problem. That is actually not in any way in conflict with Ken said, especially how he finished with if you try to go too quickly while you're one of these endurance athletes before your body becomes fully adapted to fat because you've, you've, you've conditioned it to burn glucose. Okay? And, and, and because of that, and part of why keto works so great for weight loss is it takes more work for the body to do something with fat and ketones than it does for the body to do it with glucose. And the body is far more likely to take surplus glucose and convert it into fat than to expel it as unnecessary because it really can't expel it as unnecessary and it's got to get it out of your blood.
Okay, so that's why one of the reasons it works really good for weight loss. Now, on the other side of this, in support of this and with some level of contention, is the opinion of a dude named Mark Sesson, also known very well for Mark's Daily Apple. He's the guy, the author of The Primal Blueprint. I have a tremendous amount of respect for this man, and for those of you that still believe, hey, you got to have carbs when you're doing these endurance sports and all, Mark's a guy that was considered one of the top athletes in the world in, in the 70s and 80s. He was multiple times on the cover of Runner's World magazine, and during that period of his life, he looked incredibly fit, and everybody wanted to be like him. And what he says now is, I was, I was killing myself at that point. Uh, I was doing incredible damage to my body. Some of it took a very long time to reverse. Some of it, even now, and he's an older man now, he looks great. Uh, maybe I never did. And it was some carbs. And he says if he kept going that way, he probably would have, his body would have broken down heavily and he would have, you know, crashed and burned. And he said, you know, a lot of endurance athletes do and people just chalk it up to age, but they're not that old when it happens. And if you want to know more about that, um, look up Mark Sess and, and, and put talks about his past as a runner or something like that in the quarry. Uh, if I can find some stuff, if I remember to as I wrap up today, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find some of the interviews that I've heard with him on this so that you can listen to him if you're interested. But it's not that hard to find if you want to. But the other side of it is that he will say things like, you know, there's nothing wrong with some sweet potatoes in your diet. But he's like, you better do those on the days of your intense activity. So I think that there is there is a balance point for people. And, and my biggest thing is I want you to be healthy. So if something's too purist for you to do, as long as not going purist can still work, I want you to do what will work for you. Anyway, uh, what's the saying from Star, Star Wars? Only the Sith deal in absolutes. With that, let's go on to our next one. This one on cuts and scrapes from Old Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net and author of books like the Survival Medicine Handbook. Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Matthew, who writes, What is the best way to treat small cuts and scrapes? I remember advertising for Neosporin that claimed wounds heal faster with their triple antibiotic. I also have heard, let wounds scab over, which take longer to heal, but are more protected from germs and infection in the meantime. In a long-term reduced resource environment, it would seem reducing the amount of bandages needed and the scab method would be preferable if you could keep it from infection. Matthew, it's important to know what to do about those minor cuts and scrapes you might encounter in tough times. The standard treatment to deal with small lacerations and abrasion includes controlling the bleeding, cleaning the wound, and dressing and bandaging the wound using sterile gauze and applying some antibiotic cream or ointment afterwards. That's a common strategy to deal with these kinds of issues. But at one point or another, the sterile bandages may run out, and antibiotic creams will also. In this case, you can leave the wound open, but it may wind up getting contaminated during the performance of activities of daily survival. You might choose to improvise by making bandaging out of old sheets and boiling them before use. Also, you can consider natural products with antibiotic properties, such as raw unprocessed honey, comfrey, or garlic in poultices. To discourage bleeding, yarrow would be a good natural choice. As for scabs, don't pick them. As you mentioned, they are indeed a form of protection. 
Whether you leave a wound open or not, you'd better know how to recognize when a wound is getting infected. Small cuts and scrapes can become big problems off the grid, and it's important to know how to identify the beginning signs of wound infections. They include discomfort in the area of the infection, more than what you would expect for the wound itself, fever and chills, exhaustion, general ill-feeling, muscle aches, heat in the area of the infection compared to the opposite side. Let's say if you have a warm spot near a laceration on the left arm and it's much, much warmer than what the corresponding area on the right arm is. Redness, which usually spreads, and when it does, it spreads towards the torso. There may be swelling also in the area of infection. Sometimes it appears sort of shiny and causes a sensation of tightness. Of course, drainage of pus or cloudy fluid from the area of the infection or foul odor coming from the area of infection would be a dead giveaway. All soft tissue injuries carry a risk of infection. When the skin is breached, various microbes can invade and cause inflammation, also known as cellulitis. Fortunately, infections from minor wounds are relatively easy to treat today due to the availability of antibiotics, but without them, any bacteria can enter the circulation and become life-threatening. If the germs invade the soft tissues below the superficial level of the skin, the epidermis, they can rapidly infect the main layers of soft tissue below. These are the deep layer of the skin, the dermis, the subcutaneous fat, the muscle layers, and various blood vessels and nerves, even bone. Cellulitis will be an epidemic, I believe, in the aftermath of a major disaster. This is not because it's contagious, but simply because of the sheer number of injuries that are going to be incurred from performing activities of daily survival in less than sanitary conditions. Without antibiotics, infection can spread to lymph nodes and the bloodstream and rapidly become life-threatening. The end result might affect the whole body, also known as a systemic infection or sepsis, and once sepsis develops, inflammation of deep structures like the spinal cord or the bone marrow can further complicate the situation. Matter of fact, in the past, sepsis was usually fatal. The bacteria that can cause cellulitis are on your skin right now. Normal inhabitants of the surface of your skin include staphylococcus and group A strep. They do no harm until the skin is broken, and then they enter deeper tissues where they don't belong. In recent years, a resistant bacterium called MRSA Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus has arisen, which causes cellulitis unaffected by the usual antibiotics. Although the body can sometimes resolve cellulitis on its own, treatment usually involves the use of antibiotics. Topical antibiotic creams are mostly for prevention rather than cure. Once infection occurs, you'll need stronger meds. Most cellulitis will improve and disappear after about a 10 to 14 day course of therapy with medications in the penicillin, erythromycin, or cephalosporin, keflex, families. Amoxicillin and ampicillin are particularly popular for this use. MRSA cellulitis can be treated with clindamycin and the sulfa drug combination of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It's important to complete the full course of therapy for all of these medications. More information about these antibiotics and the dosing can be found in the section on antibiotics in both the Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition or in Alms Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. In a survival situation, antibiotics will be precious commodities. You, as medic, should dispense them only when absolutely necessary. The misuse of antibiotics, along with their excessive use in livestock, is part of the reason why we're seeing an epidemic of antibiotic resistance in this country today. 80% of all the antibiotics in use are given to livestock, not to treat infection, but to speed up growth and get meat to market sooner. 
it's not known how antibiotics actually work to accelerate this maturation. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission to instill a culture of medical preparedness in every family by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So I always believe in having an herbal answer to situations, especially minor. So this was about minor injuries, minor cuts and scrapes. Uh, you know, I'm going to say comfrey, but I'm going to, I'm going to say a little bit more. First, I'm going to say that if there is any level of infection or anything, you may want to look at an herbal drawing salve. And uh, I feel like I'm probably going to do an herbal show again sometime soon, and we'll, we'll talk about drawing salves then. Uh, what I'm going to give you right now is really a good healing salve, but it also has some drawing properties as well. And if, if I was going to make a kind of a general purpose salmon, and again, anything with comfrey, as I've said before, a deep wound, you don't want to use comfrey because it is a dermal regenerator and it works so quickly, it can actually heal a wound uh, that maybe needs to not be sealed so that it can drain. But when we have minor scrapes, abrasions, and things like that, um, the three herbs that I think are fantastic for dealing with are calendula, and that is a mix of both the leaf and the blossom that I would want to use for this. Calendula, plantain, comfrey, in just about equal amounts, infused in a base oil like olive oil. The other thing we want to do is we want to use some antimicrobial. Now, there's already some antimicrobial, antibacterial components to all three of those herbs, but specifically calendula. What we want to do is amp it up a little bit. And we can do that with a combination of two oils, two, two essential oils here. And they are oil of rosemary and oil of clove. The clove oil will actually somewhat, if it's a little bit of stinging and burning, help to numb the area and reduce pain, which comfrey actually works really well for as well. Uh, and uh, has a lot of antimicrobial, antibacterial, antibiotic properties, as does the rosemary oil. You could also use oil of oregano. So oregano or rosemary, both would be great for this. And could you use crushed cloves and crushed uh, rosemary or crushed oregano in, in your, your, your base of herbs for your sap? You can, but you won't get as much bang in that antimicrobial space from that you would from the concentrated oils. And it doesn't take a lot. Uh, we're talking... Like if you kind of figure out what you expect your yield to be in ounces, right? So if you have little one-ounce containers, you're going to pour your salves into. Uh, you're going to get five. That means you're going to have five ounces of five. That, that's the wax, everything all in. And you can estimate this. You're not going to kill yourself or something you know, with an extra drop of oil. But, I mean, you are talking something in the neighborhood of one to two drops of each oil per ounce of finished salve because it is so powerful. Because it is, if you ever look at how much oregano it takes to make, let's say, an eighth of an ounce of herbal oil, you'll understand why all that is. So I, I agree with everything Bone said. I would just say you can add that to the mix. Uh, another thing that I have found that I've talked about a lot with tea spaz segments uh, for scrapes, abrasions, insect stings, etc., that works amazingly well is a product for dogs. It's called Zymox. And it is a combination of uh, uh, a steroid uh, that's known as hydrocortisone 
and four different enzymes that are derived from milk. And these enzymes have a high uh, degree of antimicrobial uh, uh, factors in them. And I have found for things like, I've talked about ant bites. If you get fire ant stings and you grab a comfrey root, smash it up and rub it on there like a spit and slap poultice, uh, most of the time you'll never break out. If you, for some reason, don't get to do that and those ant bites begin to break out, comfrey can help, but that Zymox stuff is dynamite. So that's that's one of those, I, you know, you hear the T-Smash segment today, you'll hear me speak against, you know, unitasking stuff. I don't, I mean, if you need something and then one thing that does it, it does it great, yeah, sure, that's a specialized product, but I try to do things that are multifaceted and have multi-uses, uh, And a product that goes in my DFAC, which is my doggy first aid kit, and can help me, that's pretty cool, too. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well today. That brings me to my segment. This is an interesting question, and I'm, I'm a little surprised that I'm actually being asked this because I thought I was really clear about it yesterday. So as it comes from Mike, Mike said, I really enjoyed last night's podcast so much I'm about to listen to it again. Would you equate the thoughts you have regarding state and agorism to your relationship with YouTube directing your audience to your own server so that you can connect with them on your own terms. In other words, it's okay to make use of the state to your advantage on the terms of your choosing, even though you ideologically oppose the concept of the state, Mike. Uh, absolutely. That's exactly what I was saying yesterday. When I talked about not being de platform dependent, especially mega platform dependent, and I mean both the platform is a mega platform and you're mega dependent, They're both megas. Um, it was not don't use YouTube. And I definitely would equate it to the state and, and agorism. And as agorists, I think and we're, I think the next episode of Unloose the Goose might be exactly about this thing because we had some suggestions in the Unloose the Goose group and one of them was this is agorists, you know, what mistakes or misconceptions did you take and what made you become an agorist in the first place? And to me, One of the misconceptions about agorism is unless it's gray market, black market, or you're not paying taxes on it, or you're taking cryptocurrency, unless it is completely outside of the state system, it's not agorism. And see, I, I disagree. I disagree completely. The agora, in, 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 in the Greek root, is simply the market. The market. So as a business person, I evaluate risk and reward in all business transactions. And I also evaluate the concept of if I don't go into this space simply because I don't like some of the components of this space, what does it cost me? And I'll tell you something, I'm, I'm kicking around that I'm, I might go back and start doing again on Monday. That would be a perfect example of this. As you guys know, I've basically said, screw Facebook, I'm out of there. I'm not having nothing to do with it. Every once in a while I pop in and post some shit that I think might make them ban me. Um, but on this note, I also got an email from another, another guy, and he said, you know, I don't know why you don't keep using Facebook and hear me out. And when people say that... Sometimes I read what they consider being heard out, and I get like two sentences in. I'm like, I don't have time for your shit, and I delete it. But I always try. I give it when I hear that, I give it the benefit of the doubt. And he made a pretty logical case, and he's like, I'm not saying to get back on there and start talking to people again and engaging with people or any of that stuff. I'm just saying, why don't you use Facebook the way you use Twitter? And I, like, I 
and I'm I'm open to this because I'm already thinking this way. And you know, he goes on to say what I what I say about Twitter. Every day when I put out an episode, I go to Twitter and I drop it in. I hit tweet and I'm gone. And if you comment or whatever, I don't respond to you. I don't share anybody else's shit. I don't retweet anything. I don't post memes. I don't engage. I don't plop. It's just, hey, here's my shit. I'd like my traffic if it's going to come. And I'm thinking maybe going back to doing that on Facebook because Facebook is reliable traffic to my site, and my site is a money machine. Okay, So I, I can relate that to agorism and working within and outside the state systems. And I, I said this, I think one of the first or second episodes of Unloose the Goose, we were talking about some of this stuff, and I said, you know, it's like when you think about mafia families. They always have a legitimate business, right? Waste removal or something like, you know, Tim Cook was talking about. And, and, and that way there's a place for money to move through and to be able to do things in the legitimate world, like buy a house or a car and not have somebody from the government say, where did you get enough money to pay cash for, for a Dodge you know, a, a challenger, Jack. Where'd the money come from? You see what I'm saying? Like, you start buying cars and houses, and you don't have a job, people start asking you, where'd the money come from? Or you don't have a business, but where'd the money come from? So you almost have to operate within the space and outside of the space at the same time. It, for, for a lot of things that you want to engage with in the real world. And so, to me, that makes perfect sense. And so... I really hope that you guys understood me yesterday. I don't have a problem with anybody using YouTube to build their business. I think you should. Now, I, I think it's fantastic, though, that a, a, a company like Library has built a website to compete with YouTube called Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, and it said to YouTube creators like me, we understand, Jack, that you have been putting videos on YouTube for over a decade, and you have like a thousand plus videos there. And that you have, you know, 50,000 subscribers or something like that there, and and that that is valuable to you, and that you don't need another site to upload to, but if you'll just link your YouTube account to your Odyssey account every time you publish content on YouTube, it'll show up over here, and to help you out, we'll take your last thousand videos historically and bring them over for you. Oh, by the way, you can upload MP3s to our blockchain and host your podcast here, too, as a backup. Like, that makes a lot of sense. And yet, Odyssey isn't the gray market. It's not agorism as we classically think of it. And it's, it, it is mainstream. It's just mainstream with a little more appreciation. Now, unlike library, which is the underlying technology, Odyssey could decide someday that I put a video up that they don't want there for some reason. It will still be on the library blockchain. It's on both of them, so it's fine. Um, but that's another example of like... So here's another example of how this all plays together. So recently PayPal announced that they're going to start allowing for the use of cryptocurrency in the PayPal network. This is massively good news. Now, I don't know that PayPal is actually going to enable you to accept Bitcoin and get Bitcoin. I think they're actually going to allow you to accept Bitcoin and you get cash and they get Bitcoin. And I think they're probably doing it for the purpose of getting their network ready for Fedcoin. 
I, and I get that. But people are like, it's until the government can track you. Well, if the government wants to track you through PayPal, they can subpoena your records and track you right now. Every single thing you've ever done there is. And if you're doing business there, they're issuing a 1099K and a copy of it's going to the internal rev. Like you just, there's a, instead of seeing the beauty of this, it provides yet another means of liquidity for Bitcoin. And the more liquidity a crypto has, the more value it intrinsically develops and builds. And that's why Bitcoin just went on a price tear. Like, you should have seen that and known, that, okay, Bitcoin's about to go up. But many people did, wanted to resist it because it's still too lumpy in their head. Cryptocurrency is a tool. It can be used in the mainstream, back to the question, or outside of the mainstream, or both. And the more people that get onboarded to it, the more people have it, the more liquidity it gains. Not because now I can take my Bitcoin and spend it with a merchant that takes PayPal without having to do any kind of conversions. No. Because what it's really going to do is make more people accustomed to it, accept it, see it as st stable, see it as something that, that's not going to go away, that's not the big, risky, scary thing that they've been told it is. And that results in more people with Bitcoin, which results in more people with other cryptocurrencies, which creates, creates increased liquidity across the entire crypto spectrum, and therefore makes doing business in crypto easier without PayPal, even though they helped it happen. That's an example of they're doing the work for you if you understand what's going on. And this is how we all have to think. There's just way too much power available in some of these mainstream platforms and tools to completely ignore it. But what I was trying to get at yesterday, and this is, this is a good analogy when it goes to agorism in your life, is that you take from those systems, you give back as little as possible, and you push as much as you can into the area of your life that you have control over. So um, an example of that, might be, let's say we have a contractor that does home remodels. And they do everything from little $1,000 fix-upper jobs to full remodels of entire homes. Bathrooms, kitchens, full everything, uh, poor con like big time to small time. I have a contractor that does work for me. It's exactly that. Now, I didn't find them this way, but there's also a thing called the good contractors list. And that is a platform that contractors can become part of, and they basically sign agreements and blah, 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 blah. And your money flows through there. And then the good contractors list company guarantees the work, and, and if the contractor doesn't do the work, they give you the money back. Right, and and they've reviews on their contractors and what have you. So it's kind of like when you go to Home Depot, you'll get a and you say that they'll say, well, we'll install the flooring for X dollars a square foot. Well, when you do that, you know it's going to happen because the contractor is going to get paid by Home Depot. It may not be the best flooring and it may not be the best work, but you know it's going to get done because that contractor wants more work from Home Depot, and most of those people don't have any way to get work without Home Depot. So Good Contractors List is kind of like a virtual version of that, that that is not limited to only Home Depot stuff. Now, let's say that Bill's running, or let's say Tim is running a contracting agency and finds out about this thing because a version of it exists in Canada where Tim is. So he goes into that marketplace. Now, obviously, he's going to not be able to not disclose revenue, would be a way to put it. He's not going not, he's gonna not be able to not disclose revenue. Um, an accurate double negative to uh, the, uh, the the Internal Revenue Service of maybe a different country, but or this one. 
because that money is going through a third-party platform. However, if that means he can get a lot more business, then he might want to do that. And if there's no enforceable mechanism uh, to prevent what I would call secondary circumvention, then he might practice that technique that some people might consider unethical. And what I mean by secondary circumvention is, if you are doing that and you get business and the guy comes out and looks at your house and says, you know, or you, the guy, you go out to the guy's house, you look at his house, you say, you know, I, this is how much this is going to cost, but, you know, the good contractor people get their cut. Um, tell you what, why don't you just take your requests from them down and I'll do it for less. Like, if you do that, you're going to get thrown out. They're going to catch you. That's that's direct circumvention. But if, 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 if you know... Tim goes out and does the job, and, and, and Bill, who hired him through good contractors, is very, very happy with the work. Secondary circumvention would be, if you have any more work, you can call me directly. Now, as a person builds a book of business like that, it's very possible that they could get into situations where maybe part of the job is paid for in silver specifically the labor part of the job, since there's not a direct underlying cost for my personal labor. There is for my employee, but not for me. Or maybe it's in cryptocurrency, or maybe it's in Benjamins, right? And then maybe, I'm not saying that you should do this, but maybe that person now moves that business into the gray market, agorist market, what have you, because they're not going to, um, they're not going to disclose revenue, right? <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But that would be an example of how one piece of business could come from a, a piece of the system that's lockstep with you have to report everything and be migrated to a place where you don't. And I'm not saying you should do that because that's technically illegal, but I'm just saying people do it. And I'm saying that that mindset can be taken to places where it has nothing to do with legalities at all. It has to do with intelligence. So again, that's back, okay, now we're on YouTube and we're building a business on YouTube. And we'll take our AdSense money. You know, I don't make a ton of AdSense money on YouTube, but I make like five, six hundred bucks a month on, on advertisements on my videos. And I don't feel like I work for it, so I, okay. I remember when I used to work my ass off for two weeks to make six hundred dollars. So, yeah. Okay, sure. And I have to pay tax on that. I have to report that. There's a 1099k on that, just like PayPal does. Right? So, I mean, it's, it's above board money. And YouTube has control of those people. I don't know who they are. They clicked on ads or looked at ads or whatever. And they have control of my subscribers. I really can't, like, I can't get a list of all my subscribers in a direct way to contact them. But I can leverage that video again to say, hey, get on over to tspc.co if you like this sort of thing, because I have more. And then once they're into my money machine, which is what the survivalpodcast.com is, it's a money machine. That doesn't mean it takes advantage of you. It just it works really good, and because of that, people are willing to spend money in one way or another with my enterprise. So now I'm harvesting out versus playing in. I'm participating in, but I'm harvesting out. And I think that's how we have to view so much of what we do in a world where we're trying to, you know, what we, we say on Unloose the Goose, be the goose. 
The goose flies in the flock. It participates in the V formation voluntarily. And sometimes it leaves the V formation. It goes and has babies. And if you get near its babies, it will jack your shit up. A goose does what the hell a goose wants to do when it wants to do it. But it's smart about it. It knows when I need to fly from, like, Texas to freaking Minnesota for the summer... That going it alone is probably a bad idea. I need to get in that V formation and take turns in my spot in that formation and help the whole flock help me. But when I land and I make a nest and I make my babies, I really don't want anybody else around right now because that attracts attention. So I'm going to go do my thing over here. See how, how good it is? The goose was not chosen just because the goose will jack you up. Like it is literally the flock animal and the individual at the same time and then bonds are for life you know a pair of geese are for life unless you know one dies they will you know then find a new mate so they're they're fiercely loyal and yet independent and group oriented and i think that that's the approach we need to take with with agorism that's the the the, the approach we need to take with platforms where we'll use But we're only going to participate so much. Or I'm going to say, more. It's, it's less about your participation level and more about your vested level. One of the reasons I was able to just say, screw Facebook, and I haven't been on Facebook, like I said, other than I've done a couple posts to ask two people where my money was. And by the way, thank you for sending me my money, Elaine. I appreciate that. I mean, it was slow, foot-dragging, knuckle-dragging, but yet you did it, so we're good. We're, we're settled up. Ben, dude, where's my money? I want my money. Somebody tell Ben Caprese I want my money. You owe me a silver dollar. Don't Welsh on a $1 bet. Even a silver dollar, that's weak. And But other than that, for a joke, and for a couple things that they said were banned on Facebook, I put up there, ban me. But I was able to just walk away. Because even though I put a lot of effort in, in the past, I'm not vested. My business didn't take a downturn. But overall, I think the traffic has value from there. It always has. I've got a big following. A lot of people share my shit. You know... Maybe I need to start dropping that stuff in there again. And I'll tell you, it's it's almost a point of just a little bit maybe too much ego on my end at this point that I don't want to. My life's so much better without Facebook, I don't even want to look at it. I did last night because I wanted to know what the th storms were going to do overnight, so I looked up Steve McCauley. But I was looking up an individual. I wasn't like, like my life's just better without it. But if I um, if I did something I don't do, Which a lot of people that are in my kind of line of work do, which is if I had some like admin PA type person who, when I published a show, I said, handle it. And they like shared it on Parler, shared it on Facebook, shared it on. I don't think I would have taken Facebook off the list ever. So I have to decide do I lower my ego enough to take the traffic back or does it even matter? And, and I don't know yet. I haven't decided, but I'm, I'm kicking it around for this exact idea. For this exact reason. And for the logical point that another person made to me. Like, you do it with Twitter. Why wouldn't you do it with Facebook? Yeah, okay. I, I see where you're going there. And that's, yeah, I think that's a great philosophy. It's a great philosophy for agorism. It's a great philosophy for platforms. It's a great philosophy for business. Now, I do want to reiterate one thing as I close the segment. I do think that one of the biggest mistakes people make when they look at uh, agorism or agorism. And by the way, I, I, there's an argument about that. Samuel Conklin said agorism. And I think that's a good enough authority for the way that we should probably say it more often than not. Um, you should not look at agorism as only things outside the system. 
Because by doing things in the system, in the right structure, I pay a hell of a lot less tax. For instance, living in Texas versus a state with state income tax is one way that I do that. Another way that I do that is I built a lifestyle business where the amount of shit that I can deduct as legit, like if I walked into an audit and the guy said, this thing right here, explain it to me. And of course, after consulting with my attorney, I said, this is what I do with this thing and this is why it's a deduction. They would be like, okay, yeah, I don't like it, but yeah, you, you're like, is ridiculous when you're in a lifestyle business. How much of that you can do. So that creates this opportunity. If I'm going to have above board income, well, I might as well structure it in a way where they get as little as possible. And again, take, take whatever business you can direct. One of the reasons I don't like affiliate marketing through things like Amazon, even though it's good to me, is that I don't know who bought what. I don't have a customer list out of T-Spots. I can't see you. I can look today and see, well, you sold, you know, this month you sold 112 Excalibur 9 trade dehydrators. I can see that. can't see a single thing about the people that bought them. And I guess that's good for you, but it's bad for me. Wouldn't it be great if I knew all the people that were buying product through that so that I could market other product? And, of course, I understand why Amazon doesn't want that. Because I might find you a product to buy that's not from them. Right? Like, it might be directly from me. That's circumvention. I understand why they do that. I don't have a problem with that. But it's a trade-off. And that's how you have to look at everything you do. What is the trade-off, and is it worth it? What is the advantage? And well, and if you're taking money that you're making from a place where you'll never be able to go direct to the customer, but you're investing that money in a way that, that funnels things into another process that creates direct relationships with different customers... And see, that's this creative mindset. And that's what, see, I think that's what makes an agorist. It's not, hey, I 3D print guns and sell them to, you know, my, my frenemies, right? Like, so that's completely outside the system and it's lucrative and it makes money and it's, it's illegal and they can't stop me. So I'm an agorist. I'm John Galt. If you think about it, John Galt worked in the mainstream. He also withdrew from it. Some lessons there. Good question. Makes you think. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, as I was talking about there, you can always help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at a little bitty website called tspaz.com. And uh, if you see it there, I own it, I buy it, I spent my money on it, and if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't recommend that you do. Today is Velcro brand one wrap cable ties. Velcro cable ties. I just brought you the reusable nylon ones a while ago, and they're great for some things, and the little Velcro ones are better for other things. I would rather use a little Velcro tie to, you know, if I'm traveling, to roll up my microphone cable and put it around that than I would the, the nylon ones. They, they just work better for that purpose. I also think they're better for, like, managing cables under your desk or behind your television and all that good stuff. And that's what most people do with them. So I won't say much more about that because if you need that, you probably already bought these or something like them to do that with. Um, however, that is, uh, that is not why I brought them around today. There's probably a bunch of other hacks you can do with them, but I have three. Count them three. The 70s child. Um, <laughs> three fishing hacks for them. One you've probably thought of or seen before. If you look, it won't be hard to find. And that is to protect your rods during transportation. 
If you break a rod down into two pieces while you're transporting it, which many people do to fit in a trunk or whatever, you are at an enhanced risk of doing damage to the thin part, the upper part of the rod, and specifically do it in a way where you don't even know it happened. Modern fishing rods, unless you do something stupid, like I talked about Brant yesterday breaking a rod, hefting a fish or something, are actually pretty hard to break. You, you know, people say, I only caught a two, you see these reviews on Amazon, I caught a two-pound bluegill. No, you didn't, first of all. And it broke for no reason. No, there's a reason. And what that reason usually is, is these, these, these modern rods, graphite, carbon fiber, etc. Again, they're, they're very strong, used the way that they're supposed to be used. But they're not built to have pressure from two sides shearing horizontally across them. That means they're not good at taking side impacts where the rod can flex in the short versus the long span. So if you think about your finger, right, and being a fishing rod, imagine two things on both sides of your finger, like pinching it against the bone, and one just a little higher than the other one, the shearing force that creates against the bone, versus something like pushing at the bottom and the top of your finger where it's more spread out. So Joe throws his fishing rods in his trunk, something rolls around in the trunk and bumps up against that rod tip, and when I say tip, I don't mean necessarily the very end, but somewhere along that thin part of the rod, up against the side, and it catches on something, it puts a little crack in there. Right? little tiny fracture. He gets where he's going, puts the rod together, puts a string through it, and sometimes they pull on the string and snap. Sometimes fish, sometimes it casts, snap, and it looks like it happened for no reason at all. This is like getting a hairline crack in a glass, And you go to rinse it off under the faucet and you use hot water to get goo out of it or something and the glass just falls apart. It's the same thing. What people do is you take a thing called a rod band and they're kind of like fancy versions of these things and you take the thin part of the rod and the thick part of the rod and you band them together. And that helps prevent this from happening. Well, these things are like 12 cents a piece versus a dollar a piece where rod bands are. And they work just as well. This is the trick, though, that nobody will tell you but Jack. When you when you put your rod parts together, what everybody does is you take the thin part and the thick part and you point them both the same direction. You put them together. A lot of times you stick the thin part through the first big eye and guide of the little one, and then you, you band it together. This usually creates a situation where there's a, uh, more spread and puts stress on the rods, but it, and it also creates kind of like a thick and thin side of the, of the totality. But it puts the weakest part of the rod in the least supported and protected position. Flip it around so that the, the top of the rod is down against the, the handle and shy of sticking out past the handle. And use you know two or three tie wraps, depending on how long your rod is, to hold that together. Now the weakest part of the rod is, is held firm against the handle of the rod, which is your cork or foam, and protects it. And it's a lot less likely to shear and break. Now, this is the one everybody will tell you about because people do it with rod bands, which are unitaskers, which I hate because they only do one thing well. They only do one thing, period. Here's your other two. Here's your other two. When you take those bands off your rod when you get going, you put your rods together and you go fishing, just attach them in front of the real, where the real seat is, up tight against the rod. That way they'll be there when you're done. Big deal. Okay. <clears throat> but this leads to what's called the rubber band trick, which I think I invented. I've never seen anybody else do this. 
I use bait feeder reels now where this is not necessary anymore, but I have old reels that don't have bait feeder. That's where you set the rod up and you click a cling and like the fish can pull the line off the reel, but it stays closed and it doesn't blow out in the wind and you can keep a tight line and you can change the tension and all. So it's just as much tension as you want to allow that fish to take. Well, before we had those, when I was a kid in Pennsylvania growing up, when we were bank fishing, you go get a stick with a Y in it, you stick it in the ground, you put your pole there. And then you could set the rod down. You don't have to sit there holding it the entire time. You can run multiple rods that way. Well, to do this, what we would do is we would take the line, throw it out, get your tight line the way you want it, then grab the line and pull it out at an angle, touching the ground, and put a pebble on it. And then open your bail. And that way you had tension against the reel and tension against the line. So you kept a tight line, but you kept it taut against the reel. So when the wind blew, your line didn't go and turn into a, 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 a beehive. Uh, bird's nest, right? Until it did. Because eventually you'd get a, a gust of wind that would pull it out from under the rock and that would happen. So what I came up, my uncles mocked me when they first saw this because they didn't think it would work. I just put a rubber band in front of the reel. So you do the same thing. You set the rod up, you get the line tight, whatever, and then you pull the line back against the, the, the running end and you tuck it under the rubber band and you make sure it's taut against the reel and then you open the bale. And now the wind can blow and nothing happens. And when the fish takes it, it pulls out from under the rubber band and off it goes. And if you're fishing at night and you got like multiple rods out for like channel cats or something, you usually, it's cool, you hear it. It's nice and quiet out in the lake or whatever. And you hear, I see up oh, one of the rods and you look and there's a line. Pick it up, boom. Well, instead of using a rubber band, these things will do the same thing for you. You just pull the line back and tighten down your, your thing and you put as much tension and as much line as you want. And then that way you're holding the line taunt against the reel and the, the fish side, right, the, the working end, but yet the fish can just pull it through. So there's another hack. Here's the last one. You're going to want this one. One day I was going fishing with a fishing guide, and I got there, and he had eight beautiful rods rigged up. And we were fishing for stripers and just doing drop down with shad. So you got uh, basically a slider weight, you know, about a half ounce of, of weight on each one above a swivel. Then the line is, you know, the tension down on the line and, and, and rig the rod up, you know, with the little hook holder like anybody would do. And he put them all in his rod holders up on top of his T-top of his beautiful center console bolt. It looked cool as shit. We headed out on the lake. It was a rough day. Boom, 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 all the way out. Boom, your teeth are rattling. Boom, like that kind of a day. We got there, the first 15 minutes he spent was untangling those rods because that half-ounce weight on each rod went bop, 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 spin, 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 and twisted and turned, and rods got hit together, and it was a mess. He got it done. We had a great day. I think we limited out, so it wasn't a bad thing, but it took up time, and it was a pain in the ass. I said, hey, you know about those zip tie, uh, the, uh, the Velcro ties? He's like, yeah, I, I use them in my truck all the time. I'm like, just take one of those. And whenever you're rigging something with a weight above the hook where this can happen, because it will, just wrap that around right where the weight is and hold the weight to the shaft of the rod, and that won't happen anymore. And this guy's a pro, and he's like, waves me off, yeah, whatever, it's no big deal. Next time I went fishing with him, he had him on all his rods. And he said, you know what, as a pro, you don't like to listen to people, but if you do, you learn things. And this is the single most valuable tip I've been given from a customer in 20 years. So there you go. That's all the stuff you can do with a $12.50 100-pack of Velcro ties. That's what I try to bring you with uh, T-SPAS, value-added services. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. This is by Van Halen, and uh, 
recognizing the uh, passing of Eddie Van Halen. And if you notice, we stayed all in the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen this week. Maybe someday we'll uh, we'll revisit Van Halen and do Sammy Hagar era. OU812, uh, 5150, stuff like that. But this, to me, is kind of the, the, the last big song of the David Lee Roth era, like with radio play and MTV play and all, Jump. I love this song. I'll talk a lot about why in a second. I find it to be a unique song, though. And it also kind of leads to where Dave and Eddie and the guys part ways. Eddie wanted more radio play. He wanted more synthesizer stuff going on, things like that. Dave wanted to stay more true to the rock. He wanted to get involved with making movies and stuff like that. And they had differences that led to their departure from each other. By the way, I know a lot of people don't realize they got back together, I think, twice. Once for a significant period of time, not that long ago. Um, but this was kind of the last big song. This in Panama were the songs that, like, everybody knew right before it all went away. You know? um, and it has this unique position to me. One, this was a place they had this argument about the, the lead instrument in this, even though some really cool guitar in it from Eddie, is synthesizers. Eddie was actually a classically cha- trained keyboardist and has a lo- had, a, had a love for that. Uh, and Dave did not want to do that. He wanted this to be all guitar up front. Um, and that is the beginning of that whole discrepancy. But in that way... As I said, Dance the Night Away was kind of the least Van Halen song of all time. Like, it was so pop, so bubblegum, so for the radio. And then we had Unchained, and that was like real Van Halen. Jumps like in the right in the middle. It's like right in the middle between those two worlds. And I think you can see like this headbutting and discrepancy about where they were going because, hey, you got to make the money, too. Um, going on with this song, with this pulling song about jumping. Now, Diamond Dave, right, has given a bunch of stories, and some of them at least have to be bullshit about where this song came from. One story is he heard a news story about a person standing on a building and they were threatening to jump off, and he thought, well, you might as well jump. If you want to do it, do it. Another one's it's about a stripper, and there's a bunch of other stories made up. So we don't know what this song's actually about. Maybe he doesn't either, as high as they all were at the time. Um, But sometimes I think what a song is about to a band or a writer or a musician is less important than what a song is about to fans. And I tell you, for me, growing up as a kid, I still believe we could get things done and we could accomplish things. What this song meant to to me and what it meant to my friends, it meant basically kick ass and take names. That when you get to a certain point, You gotta, you gotta do something with it. You gotta make something happen. You can't sit around waiting. And I think that's why this song is endured because I remember it being better than it is. I watched the video for it today. I'm like, this is like one of the cheesiest freaking music videos ever made, despite some pretty cool acrobatics by Dave toward the end of it. It's so freaking glam rock cheesy. But yet it's so damn good at the same time. (laughs) And I thought it was a great selection to end this week in tribute to Eddie Van Halen with. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.